Good morning, TCC. We are the Aguilas family, and my name is Leah, my wife, Buki, and our children, Tide and Teju. Uh, we've been attending TCC for about four years now, and we have the privilege of reading the scripture this morning from the book of John, chapter 14, from verses 1 through to 14. I read, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. um, Verse 9, Jesus answered and said, Don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Very very truly I say to you, Whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than this, because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Verse 14. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. The word of the Lord. It's good to be together this morning. Uh, We'll be walking through this passage uh, together, so I just encourage you, if you uh, need a Bible this morning, you can raise your hand and Usher will grab one for you and make sure you have one or open the Bible on your phone. Uh, We'll be journeying through it uh, verse by verse uh, today. A couple of summers ago, Jolene and I put a lot of effort into making our backyard a serene place of rest and relaxation. It was a a place where we'd hang out with our kids. We had a couple little gardens going, these types of things. And one day we got back from a trip. We were getting back late and I opened the door of our garage to head back into the house and I hear this buzzing sound. Like, oh no. And sure enough, right up there on our garage, on the the light of our garage, there is a wasp's nest being built in the light. And at first, I just, you know, grab the kids. We run inside. I don't want the kids to get stung. Jolene doesn't want to get stung. And I remember the whole next day, I'm just thinking about this wasp's nest. I've never had a wasp's nest before. I don't know what to do about a wasp's nest. I remember laying awake at night wondering, how am I going to get rid of this wasp's nest? What's the best way to do this? It's in the light. If I shove something up there, will I get electrocuted? All sorts of things. And so the next day, I covered myself head to toe. I had my hoodie on. It was like 30 degrees outside. I like pulled the hoodie strings up around my eyes. And you could just see my eyes peeking out. And I grabbed my little shop vac, which I think was poetically titled The Stinger. You know, these wasps want to sting me. They don't know what's coming. And if you would have been able to watch this scene, you would have seen me running around my backyard with a vacuum cleaner, uh, trying to suck up all the wasps and suck up the wasp's nest and, and bring order back to my backyard. Well, I did not get stung. The wasps were defeated. 
But in that case, my backyard, you could have said, was a little bit troubled. All was not well. It kept me up at night. And I wish I could say that that was the only type of trouble that I experienced in my life. If that was the only type of trouble I experienced in my life, my life would be pretty good if all I had to worry about were wasps' nests. Jesus says to his disciples here in John chapter 14, do not let your hearts be troubled. And this word troubled is is the same word used earlier in the gospel of John to describe um, calm waters being stirred. Where, a wa- where the water is just serene and calm and there's no movement on them. The waters are troubled. They are stirred up. They are no longer as they were. The peace, perhaps, that the water experienced has left. And I think all of us could attest to experiences in our lives where we have, ex- we have experienced trouble. Where we feel uncertain about things. Where a a situation or circumstance in our life went from being calm and normal. We had a sense of ease day to day, but suddenly it's disrupted. Trouble comes. We are kept awake at night wondering, will I be okay? Will things work out? And we live in a day and age, much probably like the disciples, where there's no shortage of things to worry about. Whether you're a student in junior high and high school, you you might lay awake at night wondering about the the pressures of, of relationships within your school and wondering about even your own academics. Will I be able to achieve what I need to achieve to have the future that I hope to have? And and parents sending those students out the door wondering, are my kids going to be okay? Grandparents and those retired looking at their children and grandchildren, watching them navigate the various situations of life, wondering, will we be okay? And in this day and age, looking at our economy, and we might look at our bank account wondering, will I be able to make the mortgage payment next month? All these things come up. And then even in our relationship with God, sometimes we wonder, God, where are you? God, don't you see what is going on? And often we can find it's easier to doubt than to have faith. Well, our sermon series right now is called Living the Life. And we're looking at Jesus' words to his disciples, his final words. And we're looking at them and thinking these final words that Jesus said were, were words that were very important. Before he went to the cross, before he ascended to the Father, he wanted to make sure the disciples got this message. They are words of life, words that bring life. And we look to Jesus to find life. But friends, it is a difficult thing to live the life with a troubled heart. It is a difficult thing to live with joy and peace with a troubled heart. Heart. It is a difficult thing to live life to the full or live with a sense of abundance when we have a troubled heart. So wouldn't it be nice to trade in our troubled hearts for peace-filled hearts? And in our text this morning, that is exactly what Jesus is inviting his disciples to do. Jesus instructs his disciples to trade in a troubled heart for belief. Now, this word belief that we have here in the ESV, and I believe the NIV as well, uses the word belief. It's, um, it is the verb form of the word uh, that we translate most often in Scripture to faith. And I think when we think of faith or we think of belief, I often look at them more as, as nouns, things to be achieved. 
In our culture, when we talk about belief or faith, we're often, um, we're often thinking about someone's religion or what faith background they have, these types of things. And I feel like when I read the New Testament especially, often when Jesus is referring to faith or belief, or Paul is referring to faith or belief, we might better translate that word to trust. And if you're reading out of the NLT, that is exactly what they have done. And the NLT did a good job there. Because where belief feels like something to achieve, I feel like trust is something that we have to act upon. In our language, when we think of faith, we think of faith, we might think of this idea of something we need just like mental assent. I need to just agree with something in my mind. I have faith. I have belief. But trust demands something of us. So Jesus says to his disciples, let not your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. Friends, here Jesus invites us to exchange our troubled hearts with trust in his promise, his person, and his power. I'm going to speak on uh, each of these this morning. First, Jesus invites his disciples to trust in his promise. Trust in my promise. Jesus says that he is going to prepare a place. It's the first part of his promise. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? Now, what's interesting about this interaction is the disciples are feeling trouble-hearted because they know something is going on. And Jesus keeps talking to them about how he is leaving. And the disciples do not want Jesus to leave. So there's this anxiety rising up in them. And even just before this part of the conversation, we have Jesus rebuking Peter. When Peter says, Jesus, I will do anything. I will never deny you. And Jesus says, no, you're going to deny me three times. I can't help but think that the disciples have in their minds this thought of what is going to happen to put Peter in a place where he denies Jesus three times. Something's coming and Jesus keeps talking about leaving. What is going on? Well, here Jesus affirms to them that yes, he is indeed leaving. He is going to prepare a place in his father's house. Now, there's two realities to this statement. And uh, the first is, is the one I think that we're most familiar with. When he talks about our, the Father's house, we think about heaven, eternity with God. You know, when we pass away, waking up in the Father's house. And there's an element and an aspect to that. But I also think Jesus here, the second reality is he is pointing to the cross. Because if the Father's house is this picture of union with God, eternity with God, relationship with God forever, how is that going to happen? Well, it happens through Jesus' death and his resurrection. So the preparatory work that Jesus is about to engage in is going to the cross. And in him going to the cross, he is preparing the reality and the potential for us to enter into a relationship with God, to experience union with God. And there's no doubt when Jesus said these words that his disciples were thinking about um, first century Greco-Roman imagery of a groom, um, sorry, of a man getting engaged to a woman. And after that engagement, if they had means, he would go back to his father's house and he would build upon his father's house to create a place for him and his new-to-be bride to go and live. It's a beautiful picture. A young couple in love getting engaged. And the young man leaving to his father's house and preparing a place so that after they get married, he can bring her to this place. It was a place that was often spacious, comfortable, a place where you'd experience rest. 
And Jesus is saying to his disciples that he is also going to prepare a place. Friends, this promise should speak to our troubled hearts. God has promised, Jesus has promised to prepare a place. In one sense, he's done it already in his finished work on the cross, preparing a way and making a way for us to be united to the Father. And in another sense, he's gone to prepare a place for us. That when we pass away, that is not the end of our stories. But we wake up in eternity with, in heaven with the Father. So despite our circumstances, we have an assurance that things will ultimately be okay in Christ. That Jesus is working on something better than we could ever imagine. And friends, I believe that we need to think about this often. We need to remember the hope that we have in Jesus often because it changes the way that we live our lives. It changes our perspective. I understand that uh, later this afternoon, the Philadelphia Eagles and the Kansas City Chiefs will be playing a pretty important football game. And uh, those of you who know me well, I have to say yes, I did have to look that up. Um, But uh, I was looking at the odds. What are the odds? Who's going to win the game, right? And according to the internet, uh, the favor rests on the Philadelphia Eagles. I don't know. I don't know if that's true, uh, whether or not. Uh, Or I'm not sure who you might be cheering for this afternoon. But just imagine you're sitting and you're watching that game. And you're, you just are betting, you know, the Philadelphia Eagles, they're going to win. This is going to be a great game. And you're watching them fumble the ball. You're watching the, the, the pass not be completed. You're watching them getting taken out right before the end zone. And you're just frustrated. Ah! And there's this emotional roller coaster that you go through the entire game. But maybe at the end they pull through and they win. Now imagine watching that same game, but already knowing the outcome. Already knowing that despite whatever you see, the the Eagles are going to win the game. Would that not change the way you watch the game? You would sit there with a totally different posture, knowing that, well, they missed the pass, but they're going to get it back somehow. Oh, they fumbled the ball, but it's okay. I, I know that they win. It would completely change it. And I still don't understand how people watch PVR sports, but it's a whole other conversation. But friends, this is what it is like in our lives with God. Jesus has promised to go and prepare a place for us. Jesus has told us the end of the story. Later in John, Jesus said that, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace, and in the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus does not promise us a trouble-free life. In fact, he, he actually guarantees that our lives will have trouble. That's a guarantee. Your life will have trouble. But what does he tell us in that context? You can have peace. Why? Because I have overcome the world. You can have peace. Why? Because I won the game. You can have peace because no matter how often it looks like the ball has been fumbled, no matter how often it looks like the other team is winning, I have overcome The end of the story, the picture we have in Revelation is Jesus reigning and ruling. That every force that was opposed to him and his kingdom and his ways falls to the side. So we can go through life with this perspective that all will be well in Christ. And Jesus also promises that he's going to come back. I'm going to come back for you. That's what he says to his disciples. 
He says, if I go to prepare a place, I will come again and I will take you to myself. Why? That you may be, that where I am, you may be also. What is the inheritance? What is the promise? What is the thing that we have to hope for? It's being with Jesus. Union with God. Friends, that is what we were created for. God made us to be in relationship with himself. God created us to experience the best of anything we could ever imagine in union with him. Sin has blown that up. It's made a mess of things. Jesus goes to the cross and makes a way for us to be brought back into that relationship that we were made for. That we would have union with God. Have a peace that passes understanding. A joy beyond our comprehension no matter our circumstances. And no matter how hard, no matter how difficult the season, a verse like this from John 14 in, 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 in verse 3, this promise that Jesus will come back, that he will be with us. And of course, we know later on in the story that Jesus sends his Holy Spirit, his abiding presence with us, no matter the situation or the circumstance. So we can trust in Jesus' promise. Well, this conversation goes on and Thomas pipes up in, in verse 5. After, while Jesus finishes, he says um, that you could be with me also and you know the way to where I am going. And Thomas says to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going, so how can we know the way? That's a good question. Jesus, you keep telling us that we're going to go to where you are, but how do we know where to go? Give me a map. Thomas is asking a very honest question. And I think it's a question that you and I all ask. Because at the heart of Thomas's question is this question of how am I supposed to be okay again? How am I supposed to get to be where you are? Jesus, you keep saying that you're going away, but the only way I can imagine life being okay is if I am with you. So how can I get to be where you are? We ask this question anytime we look for abundance. We ask this question anytime we go searching for a picture of the good life or the experience of the good life. And I believe that behind every self-help book, every advice column, I believe behind Google searches, Google, all Google searches are traces of this question of how do I experience abundance? How can I get there? What is the way? Well, Jesus doesn't give a map. He doesn't write a self-help book or break off into a 10-step process or speech on how to experience success. Rather, Jesus invites the disciples to trust his person. Trust who I am. Trust my character. You want to know the way? I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. When Jesus said that he is the way, he's commenting on this reality. If you want to get to God... If you want abundance in your life, if you want to experience the life that you were created to experience, you have to come to Jesus. If you want assurance of eternal life, if you want no fear of death, you have to come to Jesus. We have to come to Jesus. If we want union to the Father, he is the way that we experience this. Jesus says that he is the truth. That in him he embodies the supreme truth about God and reality. I think truth is well described by, being, by saying that truth is that which most accurately corresponds to reality. 
Truth is that which most accurately corresponds to reality. And when I think about that, there's this reality. I want to be someone who lives in the truth. (laughs) I don't want to live my life deceived. I don't want to live my life with blinders on. I don't want to live my life insincere. I want to live in the truth. Well, Jesus says, if you want the truth, you need to come to me. You want answers, you need to come to me. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus establishes himself as the authoritative standard of righteousness. He establishes himself as the one who is truth. Then we think about what is right or wrong. We need to ask the question, how does Jesus define right or wrong? Because that is what is true. When we start asking questions about reality even, I think we rightly ask, what does Scripture say about reality? Because that expression through Scripture is going to accurately reflect reality. It is going to reflect truth. And I understand what this means. It means that Jesus needs to be able to stand up against every scrutiny, every question, and every accusation brought against him. Jesus claims to be truth, and if he is indeed truth, then he should be able to handle every doubt, every question, every ounce of uncertainty that we might bring to him or that a critic might bring to him. And friends, I believe that he does. He does stand up against it. And Jesus goes on to say, not only is he the way and the truth, but he's also the life. In John chapter 1, we read that in him was life. Friends, God is the maker, the designer of life. And he rightfully knows how we are to get the most out of life. So the good life, that good life that you are all chasing, it is ultimately found in Jesus, in his way, in his truth. Jesus defined eternal life in this way, that they may know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ. The one you have sent. That abundance, it comes through fellowship and knowledge of God. So we do life with him. Friends, the Jesus way of life is the way for us to experience what Jesus called life to the full. As we read scripture, as we look at the life of Jesus, we see in him one who is living the abundant life. And so we rightly ask, how can we live as he lived to experience the life that he did? Well, this response to Thomas, I think is contrary to our instinct. Because I think with Thomas, I would rather get a map in a lot of ways. I'd rather Jesus just spell it out to give me that 10 step to success speech. But he doesn't do that. I think where we often want black and white, where we often want absolutes, Jesus says that it's not black or white or absolutes, but when we come to the way, the truth, and the life, we come to a person. That us navigating life, us walking in the way, us searching out truth, us looking for abundance and living it out means that we come to a person. It is relational. Because it is relational, it means it takes work. It's about surrender and not control. It's about trust and not guarantees. But that is what Jesus invites us to. Friends, this speaks to our troubled hearts 
In the sense that when we are searching, when we are feeling confused, when we are wondering if everything will be okay, when we are looking for things to be okay, Jesus stands there saying, come to me. Come to me. I am the way. You want to know the way to navigate this? Come to me. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And he journeys with us through difficulty. He journeys with us through doubt and confusion. He journeys with us as we wrestle with that question, will I be okay? He gives us himself. The promise of his person, his character. We lean into it in our troubled state. Of this, Jesus says that no one comes to the Father except through him. Jesus stresses that he, that he, that trust is, should be given to him and him alone. In the spiritually charged world, um, sorry, in the spiritually charged Roman world that Jesus lived in, Christianity was not to be understood as just one more religion among many. But this statement that Jesus makes puts Christianity out in front of all the rest. Basically saying of every other religion that they are ineffective in bringing people to the true God. And friends, we live in a culture in a day and age where there continues to be a lot of other ways expressed out there. There continues to be a lot of other unrealities called truth or absolutes that people put out there. And there is an abundance of different pictures or portraits of the good life. How will you experience abundance? Every advertising firm out there is trying to paint you in a picture of abundance, some of which are perhaps contrary to what Jesus has for us. But friends, when we trust in Jesus' person, when we trust that he is indeed the way, the truth, and the life, we are not left to figure it out. We are not left to conjure something up on our own. It is all available to us in Jesus. And it is the only way. And it's the way that we are invited to walk. The conversation with Jesus and his disciples continues. Now Philip pipes up and he says, Lord, show us the Father. Because that is enough for us. Again, an honest question. Jesus, I just want to see. I just, I just want God to just show up and be as tangible as could ever be. Jesus highlights for Philip that he's already seen the Father because he has seen Jesus. And Jesus' response here is the invitation to his disciples and to us to trust in Jesus' power. Jesus responds to our doubt with power. Philip, looking at Jesus, expressing kind of this confusion, this doubt I think this would have blown Jesus' mind. You know, in our evangelical tradition, we take for granted the doctrine of the Trinity, the reality that Jesus is indeed God. So when we read passages like this in the Gospels, like we're already tuned in to, to that reality. Well, Jesus is God. You know, why would you ask a question like that, Philip? That's just so immature, right? But in Judaism, there was a monotheistic religion. And, and so that idea of there being more than like one God in this sense, that the, the idea of there being the Father in heaven and now Jesus on earth, you could see this, this struggle that they would have to reconcile at all that Jesus was God. 
And Jesus here delivers this message of this union between him and the Father. This reality that he is indeed God. And he says to Philip, have I been with you so long and still you do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Jesus reveals the Father. In Christian theology, we call this the Christological Disclosure Principle, which means if you want to see God, you look to Jesus. You want to more understand who God is, you look to Jesus. That God, the creator of the world, the creator of the universe, has revealed us, revealed himself to us in the person of Jesus. That was his chosen route of revelation. He wanted to show us who he is. He sends his son. And that son sits in the room with the disciples and now abides in us by his Holy Spirit. Jesus is God. Holy Spirit is God. His words and work flow from the Father. The maker of the universe, the one who sees the end and the beginning, is sitting there in that room with them. Is indwelling our hearts in this room now. Passages like Isaiah chapter 46, verse 9 and 11. I am God, there is no other. I am God, there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, the ancient times, what is still to come. What I have said, that I will bring about. What I have planned, that I will do. Do you hear the power in a message like that? Knows the end from the beginning. Can make his will come to pass. That power wants to be in relationship with you and with me. That God who formed the universe came to us in the person of Jesus Christ, sent his Holy Spirit to indwell in our hearts. That power is with and within us. And Jesus is trying to stress that to the disciples. Believe in me that, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me or else believe on account of the works themselves. Do you not understand, Philip? Do you not see how I have been at work? Jesus had demonstrated over and over again that not only does he reveal the Father, but that his works are the very works of the Father. Friends, we need to let this set in on our troubled hearts. This is God, the creator and maker of all. The one who knows the end from the beginning. Wants to be personal and real to each and every one of us. Jesus' disciples and us this morning are invited not only to trust in this power, but to access it and to experience it. Jesus goes on in verse 12 to say, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Now this is one of those verses that's always made me scratch my head a little bit. Uh, It was interesting studying it this this past week. Um, Because I think, again, when we talk about this idea of doing greater things than Jesus, there's kind of two schools of thought around this. The first is the idea of accumulative greatness. That Jesus in his ministry on earth could only interact with so many people and, and do so much in that, in that time, in that scope. 
And so when he ascends to the Father and sends the Spirit, the disciples now carry on his work and have a greater and farther reaching impact than Jesus could have had. And then over time, it just gets greater and greater. Uh, So that is one way to read it, this idea of cumulative greatness. The other way to read it, which I like a lot better, um, is the reality, again, where is Jesus going? He's going to the cross. And the work that he did on earth um, was prior to his work on the cross. Jesus had not died on the cross and risen from the dead when he was going around healing people and teaching and proclaiming the gospel. In that sense, his ministry was in a way limited. Because though he could work miracles and do all of these things, the reconciliation to the Father that he came to do, that greatest work he came to do, could not be realized without him going to the cross, suffering death, and rising again on the third day. So after he suffers death and rises again on the third day and sends his spirit, the work that the disciples do and the work that you and I enter into doing is now in light of the finished work of the cross. And so we now participate in the ministry of reconciliation, which Jesus calls a greater work. That yes, he was able to heal. Yes, he rose men from the dead. Yes, he did all of these miraculous things. But I believe Jesus right now in this passage is contrasting that in some ways to the work on the cross and this need for man to be reconciled to God, to live their lives with God. In that sense, it becomes a greater work. And Jesus tells us how to engage in that greater work through the act of prayer. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, and the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now, this is one of those troubling passages in Scripture because I'm sure all of us have stories and testimonies of unanswered prayer. Where we are going through a season of trouble and we wonder, where is Jesus? What is going on? And while I think there's a lot of wisdom in recognizing that God's ways are perfect, that he knows details, the beginning from the end, in ways that we will never comprehend, so there's a reality that oftentimes we might be asking God for something that um, maybe isn't even in our best interests. But Jesus here is inviting us to pray in his name, which I think praying in Jesus' name is using Jesus' access and representing his character. When we pray in Jesus' name, we come before the Father in the name of Jesus Christ, which is to say, I have have permission or authority to ask this. I'm allowed to come before you now, Father, because I come in Jesus' name. I come in boldness. But we also come representing his character, seeking to pray the way that Jesus would pray, seeking to pray according to his will. And as we pray in his name, As we pray according to his will, our prayers are answered. Friends, verses like this invite us to pray boldly. But I know so often in my own life, my prayers are weak and sometimes often pathetic. I was listening to a sermon a couple weeks ago where Tyler Staten said that we like to pray in such a way that prevents God from disappointing or surprising us. We like to pray safe. We don't like to pray with, with, um, with specifics out of fear that God may not answer them. We hold back in our prayers because we don't want God to disappoint us. But in doing that, we keep him from surprising us. 
But when we think about a troubled heart and a difficult season, I think we need to see in Scripture the invitation for us to pray boldly, to pray in Jesus' name, to pray asking specifics, to pray according to Jesus' will, and to trust Him with the outcome. Last week, I experienced this in my own life. Um, my w- wife and I were dealing with um, uh, other friends who we were in a bit of a relational tension with. And we were feeling very overwhelmed. We were scheduled to have a dinner with them. And we were very, very nervous about this time together. We didn't know what would be said. We didn't know what would happen. Um, and so we had, again, a troubled heart. And so we just started praying committing the situation to the Lord, praying for these individuals, committing them to the Lord. And I remember after we had dinner with them and we went on our way, um, Jolene and I looked at each other and basically said, well, prayer really works, doesn't it? (laughs) It's the whole experience, everything about it surprised us. It wasn't at all what we anticipated. It was good. It was enjoyable. And that's just one little example But friends, Jesus invites us to pray, to trust in his power, to take our anxieties and the troubledness of our own hearts and world and bring it to him. So friends, this again is what we are invited to trade our troubled hearts for. For Jesus' promise, his person, and his power. My question for us this morning is, will we do it? Will we do it? Will we bring him the things that trouble our hearts, that burden us? Will we commit it to him? As we do that, it may not change our circumstance, but it enables us to journey through them with a different posture and a different perspective. Friends, an instruction in a sermon to trust is such a difficult thing to give application for. Because as I invite you to trust Jesus... I think that that will look different for every single person in this room. Um, Again, just last week, I was was online probably more than I should have been. I was going through Twitter, and I just found myself overwhelmed by all that was going on in the world. And I remember I was like thinking to myself, Lord, this is exactly what I'm preaching on. And I'm like, how do I get rid of this troubled heart? I'm feeling anxious about the government, about our economy. I'm feeling anxious about social issues and different things going on in people's lives. Like, what do I do with all this? Um, And I just, you know, it didn't, there was no answer in that moment. And it was the next day where I just turned on some worship music in the house. And as time passed, I just felt that troubled heart lift, my perspective change, and the sense of Jesus' presence and his promise and his sovereignty over all of those situations that I was feeling anxious about. So for me last week, trusting Jesus looked like listening to worship music. But for each of us, it's going to look different. And I want to invite you, even this morning around the brunch tables, share with one another. What does it look like in your life for you to trust Jesus? What does trust in action look like? And I encourage you, as you do that, you'll be encouraging one another. You'll be giving one another a vision for what life with Jesus can look like. Well, friends, some of us this morning need to be reminded of the hope that we have in Jesus, the promise that he's given. We need to be reminded that there is a present and future reality to his promises. So I hope you've been reminded of those today.
For others, when we think about Jesus being the way, the truth, and the life, we may find in our own hearts a bit of a protest. We may be very aware of alternative ways, alternative truths, and different versions of the good life. Will you surrender those this morning? Confess to Jesus of the many ways you feel tempted to run off in different ways, to pursue different versions of the good life? And will you surrender? Will you surrender the trouble? Will you give it to Jesus and receive from him what he has for you? I want to close us this morning by looking at Psalm 131. Just quickly, I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. I think Psalm 131 is a psalm prayed by someone who surrendered circumstances to the Lord, who have given the Lord their troubled hearts. And this is the posture that they have gained, the perspective they've gained. So I want to pray this over us just to close the message. Oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O oh Israel, O oh Terwilliger Community Church, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Amen.